Hello and welcome to another episode of Slogging It. I am, uh, I, we are incredibly excited uh, today. We are joined by the real one king of Test Match Special, lover of all things cricket and bad shirts, an all-round top-notch bloke, <laughs> Mr. Daniel Norcross. Pleasure to have you with us, Daniel. Thanks for so much for coming on. Uh... John, it's an absolute delight. And Robbo and Eugene, it's it's lovely to be invited. Thank you very much. I'm sorry about the shirt. As uh, I was explaining to you earlier, I've got a very strict no fun until April <laughs> policy when it comes to um, what you wear. And uh, you, you have fun between April and September. And then the 1st of October, all joy goes in the bin. <laughs> and you just have to slog your way through. As you was like, perfect for your podcast, slogging it. I slog my way through. And in three weeks' time, I'll be back in the ridiculous fantastic, shirts. Don't you worry. Fantastic. The picture um, behind you does look fun, though. I must say that. So, for those of you that are watching, yeah, I was going to say you've more than made up for it. With yeah, the well, you know, you've got to take up a hobby in in lockdown, haven't you? So I sort of knocked that <laughs> up. And, um... <laughs> your your hobby, obviously, being hanging pictures rather than painting. <laughs> yeah, you seen through me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Yeah, uh, we're going to cover many, many things with Daniel. Um, his love of cricket, uh, his wonderfully varied career. Um, which is an amazing story. He's, he's absolute um, unwavering love of the most beautiful of games. Um, but before that, um, we want to, obviously we can't not talk about the, the recent test series, Daniel. Um, obviously you'll have commentated a lot on it with test match special. Um, what do we think? Or what do you think more uh, personally about, you know, the, the kind of PR piece with England coming out and, and almost being, afraid to give an honest opinion like it seems to me the pr machine has now become the pc machine if that makes sense are we too scared of the bcci um were the pitches substandard or were england just not good enough there's an awful lot in that question <laughs> and, and, and I, I, I sort of i sort of think there's a kernel of truth in everything that's being alluded to in all of it but it's not the whole truth um to me we know that when you go to india they will be able to produce pitches that will favour their bowlers in exactly the same way as as we do actually in England and Australia to a degree does. Everybody does it around the world. They're different pitches and they're so unique in, in type that it does expose uh, technical frailties that don't ever get the opportunity to be worked on. You can't practice. You can't practice playing on those pitches if you're an English professional batter. You, where do you get the chance in April and May and September um, I mean, we, we, maybe we should have picked Somerset's top six. I mean, I don't know. But um, James Hildreth might have scored a mountain of runs. You never know. I yeah. saying, James Hildreth probably should have been picked for the last well, 10 years. You could, we'll, that's another debate. You could argue that. Um, look, as, where it comes to the PR thing, actually, I think they were very savvy. They were very smart because you do not want to look like you're whining. So, you know, we've had this before. And back in the sort of 80s and 90s, actually, used to get quite a lot of sort of complaining about things not working right, the umpiring being rubbish locally or the pitches being doctored. And it just sort of made you look like sour losers and, and it soured the whole atmosphere. And you don't, you never come out of that well. Um, England were up against not just India, but 1.2 billion Indians. And I'm afraid, you know, 60 million Brits and not anything like probably 10% <laughs> of them yeah. care. Um, never stood a chance. The numbers are against you in that situation. So I thought they handled it pretty graciously, actually. And I would say that I've got to put it in perspective. Um, India have lost one test match at home in nine years since England won wow. there in yeah. 2012. And I don't mean against England. I mean against yeah. everyone. And England won a test match. 
So, you know, they, they didn't do the worst, did they? And when they were on a pitch, which did what we think of as a traditional Indian pitch, you know, it started off quite well, there were runs in it, and then it got worse. England won that toss, they won the game. So um, I think the performance looks a lot worse because of the speed in which it happened. I think the pink ball surprised everybody. Everybody thought going into that, including the England management, totally understandably, that's the game we'll target. We've got great swing bowlers, got Jimmy Anderson, Stuart Broad, etc. And what happened? The pink ball was impossible if you bowled spin on those decks yeah. um, at, a, at the right speed at 55, 60 miles an hour. Yeah. So, look, there's a, there's a whole lot in it. I can't. I've given you a very full, but in, but in a way, incomplete answer. <laughs> um, but I, I do know what you mean. I, it does get a little bit frustrating hearing everyone saying, no, it was perfectly fair, it's perfectly right when you see a, a pitch which explodes on day one. There's no way you could call them good pitches. But by the same token, actually winning the toss didn't matter no. so much. It was how you played on them. And in the end, India played better on them than England. So, you know, that's the way the cookie or pitches crumble. <laughs> You've, uh, you, you mentioned picking the Somerset top six um, and when they actually went and did what the ECB got asked or asked counties to do creating spinning pitches and, and whatever and then they, it turns out they then got penalised for, for having a pitch that spun too much do you think there's this need within county cricket to adapt our pitches or should we do what India do and go no our pitches are our pitches we will beat people in England and we'll try and develop to play elsewhere. It's a good question. I mean, I think, again, put it in perspective, there's 12 test-playing nations. England are going to play India away every four years for a test series. They're going to play most of their test matches at home, you know, half of their test matches at home at least. So do they really want to tear up the structure and the way they do things in order to prepare a side for... Uh, conditions that actually can be not what you expect when you go there. I mean, let's not forget that India have got really terrific seam bowling resources, best they've ever had. And you get the feeling that what's brilliant about India is they can win on different types of pitch. You know, four years ago when England were there, three years ago, they had these flat decks. England scored 480. India got 700 and England lost by an innings. <laughs> so they, they can win that way as well. So, you know... I would say that it's just one of those things that happens in cricket, that there is home advantage. And, you know, England have got a terrific home record. And I think quite a lot of sides come to England and they think it's a little bit doctored in our favour because we've got the, a ball that suits swing bowlers on pitches that English bowlers are really familiar with. And, um, you know, Indian batsmen and Sri Lankan batsmen, they're not used to the ball curving round hoops and we play we play Sri Lanka poor things it tends to play them in like May in Durham <laughs> I mean if you're if you're a Sri Lankan you'd probably think this is a bit of rum um, so I mean I think it's just a it's just endemic in cricket isn't it but the very very best teams are the ones that supersede that the West Indies in the 70s and 80s Australia 90s turn of the century and this will be the big test for India when they come to England if they beat England in English conditions then we'll be able to say well look you know they're an all-round great team. Cricket has become and always has been a love of yours. You know, how did you get into it? Where did the passion start for it? Did you play as a youngster? Did you? Was it something that developed late in life? How, how did cricket become such a big part of your life now? Well, do you know, I, I don't remember not being obsessed with cricket, although it must have, there must have been a point, like when I was three or four or something. But the first series I remember, I was six. And I, I distinctly remember I was at 
home in our front room in Clapham. It was a hot summer's day. Curtains were closed to to make sure that the sun didn't glare on the TV. And I'm sat there with my dad on the sofa, with my legs sort of dangling, uh, watching David Steele. And it must have been Lillian Thompson and, and Gary Gilmore, I guess. And uh, I don't know. I just found it... I found it riveting. What's very difficult about analysing how you come into something is, you know, was I doing that because it was the only place I could talk to my dad in the summer holidays? Because that's it. That's where yeah, he yeah. was. I mean, you know, there was a dad-shaped hole on the sofa <laughs> in the summer holidays because he was a teacher. So he had all that time off that I had off and he'd be watching the cricket. So uh, whether that was part of it, but my, my granddad loved cricket. I got my first wisdom was actually the 1958 Wisden, wow. which is, a, you know, the story of the 57 season. And my granddad gave me that when I was seven years old. I went to my first test match when I was seven in 1976, the famous oval match when Viv got 291 yeah. and uh, Holding picked up 14 wickets. And, and apparently, I mean, my dad used to tell the story that he took me and my older brother, my brother was 10 years older than me, well, one of the brothers is, and uh, my older brother just kept basically going to the bar and getting tanked on cider and chatting up girls. Well, the the only few girls that were at the Oval in 1976. Mercifully, the game has moved on a bit. Um, uh, while I sat absolutely still and did not move a muscle for the entire day and got like really badly sunburned. It was the drought summer of 76. So I, I don't, I can't explain it. It was just, I've lived with it sort of all my life. So... Um, I mean, I was attracted to the the numbers aspect of it. I was attracted, actually, to the sort of time it took up and the fantasy side of it. I always think with sport that it's this wonderfully safe place in which you can fantasise the best possible outcome mm. of something. And then, obviously, you know, the game itself just gradually erodes your fantasy <laughs> and your team loses badly, you know. <laughs> but... But you're sort of, as you're, as you're there, you know, you can always... Think, and cricket's the best thing for it. Because in football, it's only 90 minutes long. And if your side doesn't go 3-0 down and come back to in 4-3, you'll find out pretty damn soon. Whereas in cricket, you've got five days to allow that fantasy to well up yep. inside you. And if you're doing badly, well, you know, maybe there'll be an eighth-wicket partnership that gets back into it. And When you're a kid, because you haven't been bruised and battered and beaten by your side losing so often, yeah, that fantasy is that much more fertile. And so it, it just keeps going. And... I mean, I suppose I have always been a fantasist and cricket was the perfect vehicle for it, really. No, I, I think I, I, the thing with the cricket, I think it finds, is it's, it's strange. I can remember going to a test match at Laws with someone that didn't like cricket. And it was the way that, even though he didn't have a clue what was going off, as the tension built in the game. There's this weird thing about cricket where every, some people will kind of sense the tension building. And in, in test cricket, it can build over five, six hours to a, to a point. And somehow everyone in the ground seems to know when that yeah. point is. And it's just like everyone's gripped to it. And it doesn't matter whether you've played 100 games for a club, a county or whatever, or not played at all. You get that kind of feeling inside you that, hang on a minute, this is big. And it doesn't matter whether it's uh, Ben Stokes innings when he's blocked, got two off 50 balls and you're thinking, right, this is massive, or whether it's whatever it might be. It's like that scene, all of a sudden you just see everyone staring at the game going, right, this is huge. And well, the wonderful like... thing about cricket is, is that, you see, it can be, it doesn't have to be that the match is on the line, does it? I mean, I no. remember the last test match that Alistair Cook played and 
Um, he was 40-odd not out overnight. And so the next day, suddenly loads of people turned up that they hadn't bought a ticket and, you know, the ground was yeah. full again. And that tension was building up to his yeah. 100. Now, the match situation was that England were quite a long way ahead, really, and quite comfortably positioned. So there wasn't tension in the match, but there was tension within the match. And that's sort of one of the many beautiful things about cricket that make it so rich that, you know, is this bowler going to take a fiver? Is the fiver is is he going to get to his hundred? You know, uh, is the partnership going to get to hundred? I mean, it's really weird. If it, the more you know about the game, the more that tension builds. And it, and as you say, you're dead right. The crowd kind of drags people who perhaps are a little bit more ignorant of its nuances mm. along with them, and they and they get gripped as well. It's this terrific spectacle. When you're talking yeah. about fantasy, Daniel, uh, you told me a, a really really lovely story on the phone a few weeks back about. When you were a, a youngster, and you know, I suppose it was your first, you know, uh, furor into into commentary, where you used to, you know, can you tell us that story? Because it's just truly wonderful. Well, yeah, this was at the Oval, my my spiritual home, <laughs> which was where I went to my first Test match in in seventy six, and then I became a junior member, and it was about fifteen quid, and you could get into every wow. game, including the Test matches, and you just waved this little piece of paper, basically, the little card. <laughs> Um, and I, so I'd been going there and I, and it was, I don't know whether my parents were particularly liberal about this or whether it was just what it was in the eighties, but you know, in the entire summer holidays, you'd go up to the over, you watch second 11 games, you watch first 11 games, watched a lot. And when I got to about 17 and I got to know the members, the older members really well. And there was this wonderful group of, of women, retired women who really loved their cricket, were really into it. And one of their friends was this blind guy. And um, he 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 was obsessed. He was just you know th- this was his place. You know it was a kind of I was going to say care in the community. I don't mean it quite like that, but it was a place. It was a community where people went and and had the comfort of of camaraderie. And so I used to sit with them, and would just talk nonsense. And then um, he'd ask me, he'd say, uh, "Can you um, can you just describe a couple of balls for me?" And so I'd, that's how I started. I'd say, wow. you know, it's Sylvester Clark, and he's hurtling in from the Vauxhall end. You go. Yeah, I know that. I can hear that. <laughs> you go, what? <laughs> and then, and the very best bit about it was that, that quite early on, I'd say, yeah, and it, he's edged that down to third man. He goes, yes, I know he's edged it down to third man. Is there a third man? <laughs> I go, oh, right. So, because his hearing was so acute, because he'd been blind from birth, he could tell from the acoustics where a ball had been hit and how well it had been hit. I mean, in a sense, we, we can, can't we? You can tell yeah. a nick or you can tell it off the full face of the bat, but... We probably can't tell you whether it's gone leg side or offside or whatever, but he could. But what he didn't know was he didn't know where the where the fielders were placed because he wasn't like a bat. He didn't have echo location, you know. So um, that's where I kind of developed this this thing. I do perhaps a bit more than other commentators, and it probably drives listeners mad. But I'll I'll sort of give you the field setting about mm. twice and over, you know, two yeah. slips, gully, cover, extra, mid off. A mid-on, square leg, and a long leg as he comes into bowl. And the reason is because um, because of that, really, because I got so used to doing it for this lovely blind chap that I started to realise that, you know, that's what radio commentary is. You're basically commentating to people who have no sight here, yeah. everybody listening. And, um, yeah, and I, I sort of I, I developed a style from doing it. But I didn't, at the time, think that I was going to use it mm. ever because... It was a preposterous notion, frankly, that anybody would end up being a 
commentator on Test Match Special. You know, those, those were that that was a fantasy, complete fantasy that I didn't even engage with. You know, but I'd but I did commentate. And I commentated. You asked about whether I played cricket. Um, I, I played cricket from the age of well, obviously when I was a kid in, in on the beach and you know in farmhouses in Wales on summer holidays and things. But I, I first played it at school when I was nine to ten. And the very first game I played, I will never forget, because it was Dulwich College under-11s, under-11 and a half, <laughs> as we were called, weirdly, against uh, UCS, University College School in London. And they had a, an opening bowler called Jay Elder, who went on to become a rugby league professional, wow. played in Australia, among other places. And um, he took eight for two as we were bowled out for four. Brilliant. And oh. I... F- I featured in the highest partnership of the innings of two. Um, uh, and one of those runs that in that partnership came off my leg. So ever since I've been convinced leg by should go to the batter. Um, I'm passionate about that, by the way, because, you know, the bowlers conceded runs off my leg. Tough, tough titty. Um, and I was dropped from the next game, even though we, we only lost by four wickets. They were They were six for six. Was yeah, there, they got. Was there, they, was there a pitch inspection? <laughs> <laughs> well, the bowling was was strangely accurate for that level. Most people were bowled. I was bowled top of off stump. It was an absolute beauty. Um, <laughs> anyway, we were yeah, uh, and I got dropped I did, largely because I dropped I dropped two catches when they were on four for six at, at mid off, and I cried and cried and cried when I saw the team sheet go up. My name wasn't on it. Um, and yes, and after that, I played all through school level and I played at university, not for the first team. I sort of got into the second 11 trials. When you're 17, 18, 19, and all you do is play cricket, because frankly, why not? And at the university I went to, the, the ground, the bar, there was a bar situated at the ground and you could go there every day and you could, put, you could get yourself eight pints of beer and you put it on a little chit and sign your name and not have to pay for it till October. Oh, wow. And in the in the brain of a 19-year-old student, <laughs> yeah. October, five months away, I mean, that is like that might as well be 10 years, <laughs> mightn't it? So, so basically, I, I never trained, trained is perhaps a weird way of putting it, but I never trained harder for cricket than I did at that point. So I, at that point, I was actually, you know, moderately good. And we were playing on these flat decks and got to score quite a few runs. And then... Um, I played for my club, the old Lanians Cricket Club that became the Alain Cricket Club. Uh, and I got progressively worse and worse. But as I got worse and worse, they made me captain because I was very good with a telephone and I knew <laughs> how to get 11 players out on a Saturday. And when I could get 11 players out on a Saturday, that then became, can you be team secretary as well? So can you get 33 <laughs> players out on a Saturday? And uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's cricket's just been, just, cricket's been the, the, it's, uh, it's a terrible thing to say, really. I don't know who's going to be listening to this. It's been the most important thing in my life <laughs> from the age of seven. <laughs> and it's obsessed by every waking hour. It is. And my wife will not watch this, I'm certain, because I'm not going to send her the link. But no, I mean, I'm, I'm being obviously moderately flippant, but it is the, um, yeah, it's been the sort of. The, it's been the thing that's determined everything that I do. I mean, I'm like every cricket obsessive. Come summer, a few pre-seasons nets in March, and then your your summer is devoted to the weekends. And so, you know, we haven't taken holidays really at good times of the year for 
the 24 years we've been together, I feel terrible about it. I know it's even worse because job. I'm commentating. So, yeah. Oh, so, do you know, yeah. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, not sorry at all. Um, <laughs> it's obviously done from the conversation that we're having that cricket is your main passion. But when you moved into the having to get a job, you work, found yourself working in the city. From uh, I gather, yes. What what exactly were you doing? And well, okay, yeah. this, is, this is a, this is a weird one. I mean, it's a, there's a long story. I'll give you the short one. That. By an extraordinary moment of chance, I, having worked in an internet startup for six years that never really properly got off the ground, found myself without a job and I um, was interviewed for a money makeover in the Sunday Times, which I did as a favour to a friend who worked on the money section of the Sunday Times. And and I'd sort of said, it. I talked about the, the internet and how the model was in serious crisis because advertising revenue was going to fall off a cliff. And that was, it was 2000 and we were having a, the dot-com bubble was bursting. And um, quite genuinely, somebody working at a different company uh, needed a new carpet. And if he could source somebody that they needed to be a project manager rather than go through an agency, the company would pay him the finder's fee, which would pay for his carpet. So he read the interview in the paper, put in a request to Sunday Times. He got hold of me and said, would you be prepared to go and have an interview for a job at what's called money extra it was like a bit like compare the market okay. or yeah. money supermarket and uh, and i went along and i got interviewed for being a project manager and they offered me an eye-watering sum of money for a job i'd never done which i had no real obvious aptitude um, <laughs> i mean it was eye-watering to me at the time it was like 65 grand in wow. 2000 I was like, and, and all the time he's like going through the, you know the, the money they're offering i'm thinking, I'm thinking do I need to clarify this? Is there a hidden camera? Is Be- is Beadle about? What's going on? <laughs> it was all a bit strange, but I sort of I stayed deadpan and, and I ended up walking out of there with this ridiculous job. And I did that for a, a year. And then there was another economic crash. So I was made redundant because who wants project managers when you've got no money? They're the sort of like the first discretionary jobs to go. And, and I went off to uh, to try my hand at becoming a, a film writer and sitcom writer, which is a, it seems like a strange uh, departure. Um, which, it did, but you know, sod it, nothing ventured, and, uh, and it turned out nothing gained. So two years, two years later, um, they came back. The, the money extra had been bought by a company called AWD, a German company, and they had offices in the uh, stock exchange building at Paternoster Square in St Paul's in London. And they needed project managers again to to redesign their website and do all sorts of things. So I worked for them thereafter for the next five years and had a very comfortable lifestyle. You know, it was nicely paid. And actually, it was work that I've said before, you know, I didn't really, it wasn't my dream job. But actually, it, it was the people you work with are what make it. And they were lovely people to work with. And actually, being a project manager is very similar to being a cricket captain. Like you don't actually have to do the work yourself because you've got fast bowlers and batters and keepers and spinners to do it all for you. But you do have to arrange for them to turn up and be there on time and fulfil their roles, you know. So uh, um, it, it turned out that I had a, a moderate aptitude for it. And uh, that was all great for four or five years, although I was essentially uh, unfulfilled, better paid, unfulfilled. Um, but... 
Uh, I was made redundant again because there was another crash, which you'll recall, 2008. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when you realise a bigger project manager is just a series of redundancies. <laughs> you, you mentioned that your parents and, and specifically your dad was a, you know, a huge supporter of you when you were playing cricket at a young age. And you know, now turning to, to, to slightly tougher subjects, um, you know, both your parents died in a, in a relatively short period of time. And I suppose, you know, how did that affect you mentally? What did you do to cope? And, and, and sort of where are you now with it? Well, it was, it was staggeringly traumatizing. I'll, I'll say, um, it's the most extraordinary thing. Yeah, you, you know, these things are going to happen. I mean, my my parents are quite a, quite a bit older than me. Um, I'm the youngest of four kids, and um, the way it sort of happened was that, that after I'd been made redundant again in late 2008, I'd thought to myself, I've got to watch the Ashes in 2009. I have to. My parents are still alive. And I thought, I've got to do this. How am I going to do this? And I thought, well, I'm going to use all the the stuff I know about. I know about cricket and I know about in- the internet. And I'm going to come up with some cockamamie scheme to watch it off the telly, but commentate it. Because my brothers also, I mean, one of my brothers really does love cricket and he wasn't able to hear it. So I thought, here's a thing. But the strange thing is that, you know, I look back on it now, when my parents are still alive, I was hesitant about really big risks risk taking because actually you know your mum's on the phone you've been made redundant again and she goes have you thought about teaching dear <laughs> you know she should be a teacher <laughs> and again i knew i knew you were gonna say that she says, good pension lovely holidays yes i know i know i know i know um, and anyway so you sort of try not to alarm them with a really ridiculous idea but actually i i was coming up to 40 and they were they they they've seemed okay at the time relatively healthy so i said i'm going to do this crazy thing i'm going to set up something i'm going to call it test match sofa with a bunch of people i play cricket with and we're going to commentate the cricket off the telly and my mother was sort of have you tried <laughs> teaching <laughs> <laughs> and my my dad who was a very sort of wise guy just sort of raised his eyebrows and said, go, go, go for it go for it brilliant <laughs> I guess he sort of knew that it was perfect for me. And so I I just did. And I, and I did it with you know a bunch of people who are still going strong. We'll talk about them later. Um, and we set it up in 2009. And the first game was due to be the Cardiff Test Match when Jimmy and Monty Panesar held out. And one week before it, literally, the, literally one whole week, the Thursday, I think, before it, uh, my mother, who had rheumatoid arthritis and she was in and out of hospital, um, and because she was in and out of hospital, we were quite used to this sort of merry dance, really. She went in this time that she was having a stent put in and um, and she suddenly and totally unexpectedly died on the operating table of a heart attack, aged just 73. And uh, it was an absolutely devastating blow, really. And it was a week before we were supposed to go live <laughs> with the test match, so for which suddenly seemed completely yeah. trivial. Yeah. And uh, and I can remember, I can remember be, being told it, uh, being told my sister rang me, and um, and I did, li- I had a physical reaction, which I think is very common for people when they experience sudden grief, and well, you know my knees buckled, and um, and instantly the thoughts that went through my head were my dad, mm. which is, I mean, interesting looking forward to what happened the next time because 
you sort of kept the grief at arm's length. You weren't grieving for your mother. You were you were devastated for your mm. father mm. because you could feel instantly. You had sort of an empathic sense of just how dreadful he he must be feeling right now. And um, and I have to say, I sort of I did think maybe. I shouldn't be doing test match sofa in one week's time. You know, I've got to go to see my my dad and uh, my brothers lived in America, and my sister lived in in Sussex. So the whole family convened, and we all went up to look after him. And it was really the most surreal experience. I think anyone who's experienced grief will say it happens to everybody differently. Mm-hmm. I'm sure, but I think the one thing that is the same for us all is it's it's you're unprepared for it completely it just absolutely knocks you for six and uh, and it was my dad actually who said you've got to go you've got to go back you're doing the first test aren't you on on Thursday I said yeah well are you sure he said no 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 no, that's what you've got to do it's most lucid he he was actually for most of that period because he was in such a terrible state and uh, so I went back and um, and we did do that test match and I got very drunk during it as a kind of as a, as coping a, as mechanism a, almost isn't it yeah coping mechanism exactly yeah precisely yeah and uh it was a way of blotting out the immediacy of all the things that you're asked to do you know we do grieve so badly uh, in in our kind of society because your relative dies or your loved one dies and then they're not actually buried for it can be up to five yeah. weeks i mean my mother was i think two or three weeks or three weeks i think after she died and the first thing you have to deal with is coroners and estates and, and in this case, you know, vicars and um, orders of service. And you're in no fit state mm. to think about what bloody hymn you want. You know, there are other <coughs> communities, Muslim community, Jewish community, where you're just left to grieve and friends come in and other relatives and they just mm. scoop you yeah. up and deal with everything. But we don't. We kind of, we force this administrative burden on completely incapable people mm. in the immediate aftermath of grief and uh until so i got leathered for five days and watched the most astounding test match and <laughs> and took my mind as far away from it as i could and um and then that whole summer really was was that it was using test match sofa and, and as we were doing it we sort of it worked really well it was a terrific therapy yeah. because it wasn't that you were running away from grief it was that you I couldn't physically sit and be in grief for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I mean, I, I'm glad I didn't because I could have done if I hadn't had yeah. a desk sofa, but yeah. because I had to do something else. It sort of just gave me relief. And then, you know, the last ball would be bold and everyone would leave my house because we did it all from my house in my sitting room uh, in front of the telly. And then it would all come crashing back down on you and, you know, you'd go through the emails and think about, what you needed to do for dad and selling the house and packing up the mm. stuff. And then next test match would come around and people would come back in and cricket was this wonderful uh, space actually. And it was something that my dad, the only time my dad really had relief from his own mm. thoughts because he'd stick test match sofa on and he'd hear his son, frankly, being quite potty mouthed. <laughs> uh, what the is Peterson doing there? Oh, Papara, what have you done? Caught at Galley again. Stop wafting. <laughs> I feel terrible saying that about Ravi because I work with him now, but you know, but we would do that sort of thing and, and my dad would listen and it gave him a bit of relief actually just to be able to think about something 
different for a bit. And um, and then really, I suppose, you know, what happened thereafter was you know, my dad had to move my dad into somewhere and, and look after him between me and my sister. And uh, and he was in a just an incredible... I mean, if you think grief is difficult when your own parent dies, if, you're, if it's your spouse, mm. just watching a man who was, you know, vibrant and capable and what have you just completely shut down and really think that there was nothing left to live for there was no real purpose to his life was absolutely heartbreaking and um, witnessing that and for the next six months we sort of um, coped and and sorted my dad out and I mean I remember hilariously we went to America to see my brother and came back and I dropped him off in his flat and he said can you put Tasmat sofa on so I can I can listen and then I'll hear you when you arrive back in London because we, we arrived back on a day of a test match and the team was set up in my room. It was South Africa, 29-10. And we'd arrived early in the morning like a lot of American flights and I dropped him in there like nine o'clock in the morning. We turned it on and Jared Kimber, who many yeah. of your people will be familiar with, and Sophia Murday, who was a stalwart of test match sofa, were in the middle of a swearing competition. <laughs> uh, it was during a rain break and... My dad was quite deaf, and so I had to turn it up really quite loud for him. And Jared was going, yeah, fuck, titty, wait, shit, wait, 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 et cetera, et cetera. You know, I don't want to ruin the program. Um, and Soph was going to very poshly go, oh, shit, wait, wait, back. And, uh, and my dad's cleaner had arrived, and we had it at top volume. And, uh, and and it was sort of so strange because there was such terrible sadness in the room. You know, I was going to have to leave him, having been with him for the last couple of weeks, and uh, and yet there was such a ridiculous hilarity. Uh, and it was cricket again that had sort of brought this bit of this little scintilla of joy into an otherwise pretty miserable existence. And then um, really soon after having sorted him out and got everything done, um, he he his aorta burst completely suddenly, like my mum. And they, they call it like the broken heart death. It's not yeah. uncommon. And, he's, uh, and he just died at home. My sister had gone around to see him for tea and knocked on the door. And he was in the process of dying at that point. And uh, that was really, I mean, that was more shocking in a strange kind of way. Because I got to spend so much time with him, I think. But what I did experience was a totally different kind of grief. Um, where before I'd been grieving for my dad's loss mm. of his wife. You know, I finally got to grieve for my mum and my dad at the same time. And it was it was amazingly liberating, actually. It was a, it was a chance actually just to cry, yeah. you know, and be free to to feel appalling without having to answer to yeah, anybody. Yeah. And I found it. But it was, yeah, it was extraordinary. And it was amazingly. Um, I mean, the last book my dad bought was The Wisdom of 2010 because it had an article about Test Match Sofa and me in it. And he never got to, to buy it because he died. He'd ordered it, but he never got to buy it because he died just before it came out. And, uh, and I think about that quite a lot when I think about what I've got mm. to do because it was, it was his death and the inheritance of a modest £47,000 that um, basically paid for me to keep Test Match Sofa going for the next few years and and actually gave me you know could, do we call this a career absolutely it seems we like call it a career. behind a microphone yeah. is it a career i don't know but 
Uh, it's a bit of a grand term for, for doing what you want to do. But yeah, with, without that, I'd never have been able to continue. And so, you know, out of this really quite horrible experience, frankly, um, came something that was, for me at least, genuinely brilliant. Well, uh, that story is something that I know uh, Eugene's going to ask you about very shortly. But before that, uh, we must just break quickly for the advert for our uh, charity partner, one that is very close to Daniel's heart as well as ours, the Lord's Taverners. We'll see you in a sec. The Lord's Taverners is the UK's leading youth cricket and disability sports charity. We break down barriers and empower disadvantaged and disabled young people to fulfil their potential and build life skills. Our cricket programmes support some of the most marginalised and at-risk young people in the UK, using sport and recreation to build links and encouraging groups to play sport together. We tackle issues such as knife crime, unemployment, radicalisation and also isolation, something we are all feeling right now. Last year, our programmes impacted the lives of more than 12,000 young people and, with your support, will help even more in the future. Find out more and make a donation at lordstaverners.org and help us to continue our life-changing work. Thank you. Thank you, as always, to our charity partners, the Lords Taverners. Don't forget uh, that you can continually support them by texting TAVS11 to 70331. That will allow you to donate £3 to what is an absolutely wonderful charity offering all disadvantaged kids uh, a sporting chance in life. Please make sure that you are 16 or over and have the bill payers permission with which to do so. Um, so, Dan... For those that aren't aware of what Test Match Sofa, or the real TMS, uh, as I call it, was, um, can you talk us through the kind of concept, the style of the commentary? I mean, I've got a lot, I've got a lot to thank you for, for setting that up, because obviously I, I, what has phoenixed out of uh, Test Match Sofa, I'm, I now commentate on, so it's given me a real good outlet with which to you know, try and hone my skills to one day hope to be in the same league as you. Um, but are you, and are, are you proud that you know, your creation in its new guise lives on? Oh, hugely. I mean, yeah, firstly, I would say that I do get often called, you know, the, the, the founder of Test Match Sofa, and it's only, it's only partially true. I mean, it was founded by all the people who did it together at the same time. One thing you learn um, is that you, you don't get, well, I, I didn't get anywhere in life without help and support mm. of a lot of people. And people say, well, that's trite, but it's just not true. You know, that my upstairs neighbour, wrote the website code wow and he's, he was a website designer who loved like cricket yeah. um the people that i started it with are as much founders as me that nigel walker I was gonna say the, the hendo was tony bish around bear. at that point well hendo, no no hendo actually wasn't either or bish but they, they hendo joined quite early okay. on he, he joined in 2010 but right at the beginning it was um it was kit harris who's doing commentary on bbc yeah. now um and uh, it's a chap I used to work with called Rob Robert Deverell, who did all the the back end because it's you know so much. If you, what it was was an online ball by ball commentary. So to make that happen, it's not as easy as just I sit down, drink Stella, and shout at Kevin Peterson. <laughs> it's um, <laughs> it's it's you know, and I, I love Kev by the way, but you know what I mean when he when he when he would get out because yeah, yeah. of the disappointment. Um, <laughs> uh, it's it, you've got to have a you've got to have a server. You've got to have the technicals you've got to have the microphones uh, you've got to have all of that working and and that was everybody pitched in to do that and a friend of mine i'd done some of the 
the stuff I talked about earlier, the sitcoms and the and the the, the films and the plays with Tom Clark. He was hugely instrumental in, in helping bring that all together. So you realise it's a massive ensemble thing. And, yeah, I mean, I am massively proud of what we put together. I mean, I'll give you a little... A little I'll, I'll sort of cut to the end and then go back, if you don't mind. So um, just if you're wondering, Testback Sofa, which is now guerrilla cricket, basically, um, is a bunch of cricket-loving fanatics who get paid nothing to sit in front of the TV and provide ball-by-ball commentary. And we decided that we wanted to do it like Test Match Special, insofar as, you know, you'd say, here's Stuart Broad coming into bowl from the pavilion end. But we'd probably say, and here's Aryan Petridish experiment, Stuart Broad, <laughs> tall and strange and magnificent, running Malfoy. away with Malfoy with a, with a wind blowing through his hair as he comes into the helpless Australian uh, lick spittle, Ricky Ponting, who has edged it and gone on your bike. You know, so it, it, essentially we were doing that commentary, but we were but we were adding weird stuff to it, and we were allowing ourselves to swear, we were allowing ourselves to drink, and so. Um, and it, so it was alternative. It was this, it was supposed to be alternative. It wasn't supposed to be like Test Match Special, but it was supposed to be that if you listened in, you would know what was going on and you'd know what the score was. And amazingly, and this is the thing I think I'm most proud of, I, I did a, a sort of documentary piece which was sponsored by the, the marvellous Doors Cabinet, actually, calling the shots during lockdown, when I got an opportunity to really reflect on the journey of Test Match Sofa and Guerrilla Cricket. Um, I got the very great fortune to commentate the World Cup final for SEN, not for the BBC. Uh, I did that with Adam Collins, who set up, or was, was one of the early members of White Line Wireless in Australia. And when I was in the press box for that World Cup final, in the press box was Andy Zaltzman doing yeah. stats for the BBC upstairs. And he'd not done any cricket broadcasting until he was on Test Match Sofa. That's wow. where he sort of began that journey in the 2010-11 Ashes series. Uh, Gary Naylor yeah, was yeah. in there writing. He'd been one of the very first people to be on Test Match Sofa, a wonderful scouse. Yeah, yeah. And we partly wanted him because you'd never hear a scouse mm. accent on yeah. cricket commentary. No. I mean, I was, I was very, very keen on diversity. <laughs> very early, you know, I'll tell him that next time I'm, I'm on comms with him. You're yeah. only on because you're a scouser. <laughs> Well, I was no, I was any reason, but it was, but it, but it was, it was one of you know, hey, hey, Stuart Broad, hey, what you doing? And because you know, you never hear that sort of voice. And we had lots of women on the program before there were a lot of women doing commentaries, Sophia Murdy and what have you. And like I say, in that press box was Artif Nawaz, wow. who was working with the ICC, um, who was on Test Match Sofa, Jared Kimber, yeah. who had done his first commentaries with us way back in two thousand and nine. The very first year in that South Africa series I was talking about earlier, and he was with me, commentating for SEN. Uh, there was Lizzie Ammon, who was one of our first emailers. We'd sort of like gone, email your thoughts on the program, and you know she was there writing for the Times. Uh, there was the Bear Nigel Walker was there working for the World Feed. Wow! In in the yeah. press box at the World <laughs> Cup final, and I looked around and I think I counted up seven people who had come from Test Match wow. Sofa, who were in that press box. And I'm, you know, I'm not here to take the credit for that because everybody who was part of that, that journey, that story, takes credit for making the most of all the opportunities. And also it was the changing world, you know, the internet were providing these opportunities. Suddenly 
you actually could listen to a live stream without your modem going off you know back <laughs> 2005 <laughs> whereas this was you know Mom, it, get off the phone <laughs> you got it exactly exactly so you know it was the right place the right time but all those people did seize all those opportunities and found themselves in that lord's press box and it was really uh, an emotional feeling actually that we'd all come through that together and so yeah i am proud i think they should all be proud too i don't think any of us should be any more proud than any of the others and i'm delighted that, of the journey of guerrilla cricket that it's continued you know they won they bought the rights to ireland's first men's test match wow i mean that is a story yeah, yeah, yeah. isn't it yeah, absolutely. and i don't think it's been given enough credence and that and that came out of that whole movement so you know and we see it continuing and it's marvelous to see and it's about fan engagement it's about bringing cricket to the people from the people who love the game which is not to say that you know I, I i'm not i don't have a downer on traditional commentary but i do think that there's a place for us to encourage just pure silliness and joy and that was the idea of it really um i have to be a little bit more serious <laughs> but then you know, i say that i mean my my basic my basic role on test match specialist sort of distract my summarizers from talking about the cricket and get them to talk about zombies or something <laughs> <laughs> that's not strictly speaking true but you or at least my producer would say that's definitely not true <laughs> but I, I do find myself doing that every now and then so yeah it's yeah it's it's a very it's a it's a thing i'm proud of yeah yeah and you know to see it still going uh and and still still churning out new talent Jono how do you find it it must be I, I, I love well, it you, no, you tell, you tell yeah, me I, honestly <laughs> I love it I mean I remember so the first time we met I've, I've said this to you before um, I think I think you were with Katie at the Oval and I happened to be at the Oval and I, I heard you two talking in the long room and I basically, I mean, much as is as is my character, I just bowled over and just went, I recognise your two voices anywhere, as I'd had about 18 pints or something. And then you, you kind of, you very pleasant. And he said, oh, hello, yeah, nice to meet you. And, you know, and then I just kind of stood there awkwardly for about 15 seconds with no one saying anything before I kind of shuffled backwards and off I went. Um, but yeah, I, look, I got invited by uh, Jules Farman, who does a lot of work with Cricket Without Boundaries, who's been involved in Gorilla for maybe, I don't know, a year, 18 months and... I've been doing it for about a year now and love it. I love the, I, I was commentating, it must have been on the India series. It was when Ben Stokes um, did Rohit Sharma LBW and I was going absolutely bonkers. I was going to bring this up. I was going absolutely bonkers <laughs> and just kept talking and talking for about 45 seconds. And then I get a, a, a text message from Knuckle saying, Jono, you've not fucking told anybody what's happened. You just got, I'm just going bonkers. <laughs> I'm just so excited. Um, but, uh, you know, I love it. The fact that everybody's, there's some really strong opinions on there. And I actually love being able to engage on that level and have that level of cricket conversations with, you know, like to Gary, Bish, uh, the Bear, Hendo. I really enjoy working with Hendo. I think he's wonderful. Um, and it, there's just so many different characters and you never know who you're going to be on with. Uh, and it's it's brilliant. So, you know, I thank you from the bottom of my heart for the fact that you guys, you know, started it, you know, 11, 12 years ago. Um because it's given me an, well, an do you know, outlet. Do you know what, what what I love about it is that your enthusiasm speaks exactly to why we did it in the yeah. first place. Because it is so much fun. But at the same time, you you can get really good at it. I mean, for my money, 
Nigel Henderson is one of the mm. best pure ball by ball commentators really. you could yeah. listen to. He's he's absolutely superb, and um, I think I I had this belief that seems crazy, but it's that if somebody wants to be a cricket commentator and they love the game and they understand it, they've got a better chance of doing that than say being a football commentator. Mm. Football's very different kind of medium. It's a, a lot about recognition. It's a lot about getting your words out very quickly. It's about um, it's about being quite spare in, in your own opinions because you don't have an awful lot of yeah. time to work with. Whereas cricket is a, a place with a lot of space mm. in it. It's designed that way. And obviously people can be better and worse at it. But people who love their cricket are brought up with radio mm. because you have to be because you, let's face it, very few people um, watch seven and a half hours a day every day. Yeah. Hmm. They have to be on the move, they have to go around, they have to do whatever. So you're brought up with the idiom of radio commentary. And that means that strangely, more people than they realise actually can do it. You're kind of learning while you're listening, and, aren't you? Yeah, yeah you are. And, and the fact that you love it is the point. It's, hmm. it's, it's so much fun. It makes me feel moderately guilty. You won't be saying that when I take having... your job in about eight or nine years. Time. <laughs> <laughs> if you do it in eight or nine years, that'll be all right. <laughs> right yeah, fair enough. <laughs> It's the ones I'm really worried about, the ones I'm looking right over my <laughs> yeah, shoulder at absolutely. right now, because they can sod off. <laughs> so I've, only, I've only just started. Yeah. Give me a fair crack at a fair suck at a pineapple, as they say in Australia. <laughs> I don't think you know what you've created here, Daniel, because you've, you've said it's up on earth some talent and you use Jono in the same sentence. We are not, <laughs> not going to live that down. But then look at his face. Just look at his face. Now, well, that no, smile. No, no, one, no one's ever leave. said anything that nice to me in my entire life. <laughs> And I actually don't think you meant it. I'll take it. I'm taking it as my own. Yeah, I am now scared. Yeah, I'll take one of the others down, Daniel. I'd never do that to you. Please. I'm a man. I'm a man's older than me. You can go gun for him first. I I find it really interesting when you take talk to people um, about the listen to cricket. I I I grew up in a house and we didn't have. I can remember in the 90s and stuff when cricket was kind of on terrestrial television and the commentary on the BBC television commentary was all right, but the Test Match Special commentary was unbelievable. And my mum and dad used to put BBC on the telly but mute the sound and put the cricket commentary on, put the TMS commentary on. So I grew up listening to all that kind of stuff. And one of the most bizarre moments of my life happened last year in Cape Town. I've grown, I love Test Match Special. And this is no disrespect to Talk Sport 2 and anything they do there. But there is nothing better for me than, than the guys that they get involved in Test Match Special. And last year, my, my best mate and me and Jono got invited to a wedding in, in Cape Town. And it was Vic Marks' daughter was marrying my my best mate. Oh, really? Mug, yeah, yeah, yeah. M- yeah. M- M- Muggins oh, here was best man. Oh, I oh, I'm going to love this. Yeah, right. So, okay. So we I, we sat there and we 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 and and at the time it, it was on the day before. Um, uh, Jonathan Agnew was had been invited to the wedding, but Rory Burns went over on his ankle, <clears> broke it, couldn't come. So I was like, before I'm preparing this speech, thinking it's going to be Vic, Jonathan, all these guys. That Simon Mann was used to be there as well, I think. Yes, yeah. yeah, so like, and I'm stood there going, how am I going to do this speech? Like, this is going to be, and that's like my dream, my dream job. I'm a bit like Graham Swan when it comes to cricket commentary. Sky Sports can kind of do one. 
I would love to. If give me an hour on Test Match Special, I would. I'd be. I'd love it. And I can remember. Not you as well. <laughs> Jesus Christ! I'm definitely not going to have a job. I'd, I'd, my my use of language is nowhere near the power of yours. Mate. I don't think you've got anything to worry about. I can't go half a sentence without going uh thingy. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, we stand up and Vic obviously does the father of the bride speech and absolutely smashed it. And I was just stood there going, this this couldn't possibly get any worse. <laughs> but I, I got up and I gave my speech and uh, I didn't get a comment from Vic, which I was a bit gutted about, but I did get a comment from Vic's wife that was, and uh, I don't, you probably met Vic's wife. She's Anna, a, yeah, she's lovely. She's, yeah. she's lovely, but she's... Fierce, um, fierce yeah, yeah, fierce. <laughs> that's the perfect description yeah so we're doing the thing and I was like thinking I just want one of them what, the only people you're bothered about when you're best man is the bride and groom you know they're going to be alright but the mother, the father and mother of the bride are like the two people you just go just please say I've not upset them and Anna walked up to me and I'm going oh god here we go right, that's what I didn't say anything too bad and she went that was good I thought you were going to go over the top at one point but you didn't well done and walked off <laughs> And I was just like, yeah! high praise from Anna. <laughs> uh, that that was... actually, that really is high praise from Anna. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I she, just she, she, ran up a... to the bar. I was like, yeah, I've done it, nailed it. She, but, she is, she is a very, very constructive critic, is Anna, and she's a <laughs> hugely fiercely intelligent yeah. woman. So yes, yeah. I would take that. I would take that as a strong compliment. But no, it was the most nervous <laughs> I've ever been. I've, I've played a bit of cricket, done a a bit of other things but that was by far the most petrified I was giving a speech in front of one of my commentating sort of idols was was good but um well it's it's, it's interesting you should say that about uh, that that it's inculcated in you from such an early stage because so many people did do that you know they did hmm. the, the the BBC commentary in the in the 80s and 90s frankly was um, quite I was going to say torpid that's not quite entirely fair you know, R- Richie did what Richie does, which was terrific mm. and very spare, and uh, and Jim Laker, uh, but there wasn't a lot of there was not a lot of, of extra mural activity, no. was there? It was sort of to the to the point of what you can see, and that would be it. So if you wanted to sort of jazz up your experience, you'd turn on Test Match Special, and then you'd hear, oh, this wonderful variety of noises. That's the that's the joy of test match special is its variety you know you'd have mike selvey being really quite trenchant and occasionally very grumpy you'd have vic marks being just fabulously lovely i mean he's just yeah. he's just one of the loveliest sounds you could hear you'd have Aggers and brian johnston getting a combination of really right on it and then like, oddly whimsical out of nowhere christopher martin jenkins keeping everything tethered to the ground and making sure that you know we did know what was going on yet at the same time a wonderfully dry wit to him as well and it was this sort of ensemble cast of characters mm. whereas the, t- the tv in those days didn't really have a cast of characters it was it was really they were they were sort of there just to let you know what had happened you know yes that's gone away down to, but that'll be three and it would be three the moment he left the bat, and Richie was always right. It was three. How he knew it was going to be three, I never know. But it was it was always right, and it was just right. You know, it was it was a, it was brilliantly efficient and correct. Whereas the Test match special, which was, I mean, John Arlott really was its sort of founding father. Really, I mean, you talk about Rex Olsen and all those people, but John Arlott was the one that really gave it its its sense of what it was. And then Brian Johnston arriving in the very early seventies. Yeah. With this sort of remit to say, 
what you should be doing is listening in to a group of friends that you mm. want to be with talking about the cricket. And I always think that that's the point. It's, it's, it should be that when you, you know, like when you go into a pub and you hear people talking, you, you can tell if you'd like to be part of that conversation or mm. not. And Test Match Special has always got to be part of that conversation, which is inclusive and that drags people in and says, oh, I'd love to be, I'd love to be in that, you know, yeah. whether I'm just listening or whether I chip in. And um, because times change and because, you know, the world moves on, those conversations change. And so Test Match Special has changed mm. and its personnel refreshes and reflects better the diversity of conversation that we have in our society now. Yeah. And I'm really proud of the way test match special has moved on in the last 10 15 years you know the really different and diverse voices that just make for a richer richer sound and there will always be people who don't like a certain commentator that, that you know oh this is outrageous he's destroying the traditions of Arlet. there'll always mm. be that and yeah. well that's one of the things you you have to learn you know the very first day i did commentary for a men's game which is where you get a higher profile and so people jump on you I was reading through my Twitter feed and people are mostly very nice, aren't they? And lots of people who had listened to Test Match Sofa had tweeted me and said, you know, congratulations and well done, really enjoyed, what have you. And then as I was scrolling down, feeling really cock of the walk, you know, I've nailed it. <laughs> I'd already constructed my Desert Island discs. I was, you know, looking forward to being on the equivalent of Wogan, whatever that is now. This is how old I am. <laughs> um, then I scrolled down, I got this tweet that said, uh, Mr. Norcross, you are the worst thing that has ever happened to this program. My favourite program. Oh crikey! And I, so I tweeted back. I said, "Oh, I'm so sorry. How, how long have you been listening?" He said, "35 years." Oh, <laughs> <laughs> just twist that dagger. <laughs> so, oh yeah. So do you know? It's it's just a remind. It's just a reminder that um, the thing about broadcasting is that, it, however much we try to do all these things, you try to do these things for the greater group of people you'll always be detested by someone yep. <laughs> and it's worth it's worth remembering before you get too pleased with yourself i have a really pertinent question that's really close to my heart right here and um, you know the tms cakes are they really that oh, good yeah. or or was there ever any cakes that were not good <laughs> have you had any shit cakes that's okay. what we want to know have you just told mrs I've... davies from down the road that it's a really nice cake when really you're all spitting it in the closest bin well actually Jono, I like to say I'd like I, I consider myself unusual. I like to consider myself a journalist, so I tell the truth about cakes right. uh, because I don't really care for cakes that much. Shock horror. <laughs> okay, I would rather they sent us a, a really nice Pinot Noir malt whiskey or a <laughs> Pinot Noir. Yeah, <laughs> that, that is like way more up my street. But they, you know, this is Brian Johnson's fault. They've been sending these bloody cakes for ages, and and I said when when I first did my very first Test match special game was. England against India test match at Wormsley, women's test match. And I'd only been out of test match sofa for a year. So I was, I was really kind of cocky. I was saying, one thing, one thing, Adam, Mountford producer, is I don't do cake. Right, you know, I'm, I'm the bad boy of British broadcasting in cricket. <laughs> I don't do cake. I do Stella Artois. Uh, sorry, that's a product place. Other beers are available. And all that. And he, and, he, and, he, and he just sort of nodded. And then that very first game, I'm going to, I'm sorry for the Hampshire under 16 ladies that I'm bringing this up, right? Because they were very generous. They brought a cake. Now, at Wormsey, I was on this trestle table 
And if you've ever been to Worms, I know you yeah. guys have, but it, it, our listeners might not all have been. Um, it's a very difficult place to commentate because you're only raised off the ground about four or five feet, which makes your line of sight quite tricky. And what you absolutely do not need is anybody walking in front of you because they can do, and then you really can't see. And that's a disaster, right? And suddenly, this group of girls, totally without warning, started like moving and lingering and coming up towards this trestle table where we were under a gazebo. And I started on a kind of diva-ish rant. I'd say, well, I, um, I'm pretty sure it's Dipti Sharma coming into bowl, but uh, it's, it's quite hard for me to see because there's a, a group of young ladies uh, stood right in front of them. Just as I was sort of getting this kind of slightly barbed, uh, passive-aggressive <laughs> line out, this, this piece of paper landed on my table and it said, Hampshire under 16 ladies, they brought a cake. Describe it. <laughs> I thought you utter bastards, <laughs> right? Okay, okay. Let's let's uh, let's have a look at this sodding cake, and and I'm sorry, Hampshire under sixteen ladies, but it was an unremarkable cake. It was it, it was <laughs> it was basically cube-like in shape, and it was chocolate, and and I thought I'm going to be true. I'm going to be true to myself here, and I'm going to say what it is. I'm a journalist, right? It's not the best cake, so. I say, well, it's got a it's got a fairly standard design. Um, no, nothing particularly intriguing on the top. I could see these poor girls' faces. Like, oh. and, I, and I thought, you know, you should feel guilty at this point. I said, no, don't feel guilty. Go for it. Go for it. Come on, you're the bad boy of British cricket broadcasting. <laughs> and so I so I said, but so I need to cut into it and see how moist it is. And, Used moist deliberately because I know how much people hate that word. <laughs> Great word. Great. Word. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. I love it. But you know, people react badly to it. So <laughs> cut through it and said, "It's not quite as moist as I would have hoped." <laughs> oh no! So, it's like so, Mary Berry on it. Yeah, yeah. So I thought, yeah. So if you're going to make me do this, I'm going to do it. And and I look back on that now, and I think, you total nutter bastard, Norcross. Why didn't you just? Why didn't you just? play the game um and so yeah i mean nowadays i mostly play the game and, and actually most of the cakes we receive are absolutely fantastic we have had some pretty diabolical ones and i'm not going to say who sent it because it was um it, it was somebody quite high up in the british establishment Crikey. um came on came on to do an interview and left uh, left an offering which didn't go down 100% well they, they were just frankly they were dry they were flaky and they they didn't do it for us um, and uh, had I been asked to describe those on air I could possibly be in the Tower of London now <laughs> <laughs> but but I will say that the greatest I think the most remarkable thing that we ever received cake wise and it wasn't actually strictly speaking a cake it was a sugary installation was sent to us <laughs> And I'm I'm not a I'm not a, a royalist. I'm not I'm not anti royalist either, to be brutally honest with you. I'm sort of very agnostic. I can't really I don't really care, to be, to be honest. But I, I think she's called the is it the Duchess of Cornwall? Who's the the one that's married Camilla. to Prince Chuck? That's right. Camilla, yeah. yeah. Camilla. Camilla, that's right. Camilla, formerly Camilla Parker Bowles, that's right. She sent in for World Cup final date the single most staggering thing I have ever seen. In, in confectionery terms, truly remarkable. And it was, it was um, the outfield at Lords. It was the World Cup 
itself. It was a, a little Owen Morgan and a little Kane no Williamson. All made out of sugar, all coloured, all glorious, all absolutely beautiful. It I was, spent hours on it. It was remarkable. <laughs> well, who, who, who knows? <laughs> who knows how much Brabinger was involved? But, um, but I, I, I thank her enormously. And, you know, for that reason alone, I'll, I'll probably support the, the retention of the monarchy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I was about to say, that Daniel Norcross, never to be seen on Bake Off, the honours list, or at a Hampshire presentation evening <laughs> for the rest of time. Thank you. Can we cut all the things that made me look bad in that bit? <laughs> uh, that's not Eugene's uh, producing style, unfortunately. The bloopers, yeah. real. No, man. no. Um, have, go on. Yeah. have you ever had any, shall we say, special cakes sent in? I've always thought this because we oh, were. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know. I know exactly what you mean. It's it's our producer's biggest fear, um, <laughs> because you know, in a way, we should have a, like a taster, shouldn't we? Like pharaohs have. They should have a bit. And then you know we'll like look at them four hours later and see if they're climbing the walls off the <laughs> off their mash on acid, uh, because you you do sort of wonder if people wanted to they they, they could, could yeah. do that but but we, they... we were oh, oh this is a little bit of a uh, when I was on the MCC and cricketers we were considering it were you to, to send up but we we didn't get brave enough to be honest and it, it would also have been yeah we couldn't kind of we well actually know, you... we didn't know anyone that could have uh, provided us with any. Kind of, a, no, of course, of course, you didn't. No, course, I'm absolutely but, um, sure. No, I mean, you know, yeah, the MCC um, young cricketers would never have had access no, to a, to a, we, a hash we were, dealer. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> we were talking about how funny it would be to just and then just listen and see <laughs> see what happened. I mean, at the time, it was like I can just imagine Henry Blofeld on a special cake. Would you be able to tell the difference? <laughs> what, what, this, is, this would be the question. Like, how how many pigeons would he see? <laughs> Well, it's funny you should mention that because because the, 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 a lot of the pigeons, I'm going to let you into a little secret here, but not all the pigeons were real or all the helicopters. <laughs> he, he, he told me once, I'm sure he won't mind me saying this, that I, I, the very first men's test match I did was at Edgebaston in 2016. And, uh, and he was, you know, coming towards the end of his career. And as you get older, it really is a lot more difficult than people think to see from the distance we are. You know, we're 100 yards away mm. and high up. and uh, And he was... You know, getting getting on a bit, and he was he was suddenly able to spot various things in the holly stand <laughs> while he was on commentary, um, and because Henry's style was he was brought up in the old school style, which is that you commentate the six balls, and then you stop, and then you know Fred Truman, Trevor Bailey, or whoever you know your your summariser would then speak during the break between overs, and then you pick up again. Well, modern summarisers don't do that. You know, Vic doesn't do that. No. He's, he 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 does. He likes he likes to talk, and uh, and certainly Graham Swan, Michael Vaughan, Tuppers, they all like to to chip in a lot. And why not? That's what they're there for. And uh, Henry was sort of describing these things in the Holly stands. I see a man with cerise trousers, and he appears to me with a with a what probably is a young grandson, and uh, they're, they're sort of play, they playing with a diavolo of some kind. Are you familiar with diavolo? No. And, 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 and he he came off air, and I and I turned to him and said, Henry, how on earth could you see? I mean, I I, I can hardly I can just about make out the odd. None <laughs> in, the, in the holly stand, but only when there's seven or eight of them together. How did you see it? So, oh, my dear old thing, there's no, there was no no man with cerise trousers. I was trying to shut someone <laughs> which can't be an easy task to be quite frank. No. 
Well, we've all we've all tried. And, uh, and <laughs> brilliant. But no, he's mar- he's, no, he's a marvelous he's a marvelous commentator, is Swanny. But it, it, it was just brilliant to have uh, uh, that insight. So, yeah, in, in terms of of the pigeons and the buses, and whether or not Henry was on hash cakes, I can assure you he wasn't. But. <laughs> How much of a difference it would have made if sure. he were? Oh, think, just a slightly it, bigger helicopter, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you should try that on gorilla cricket, John. To just it for a day. Well, we're all we're we're all in we're not in one location at the minute. We're not in Sydenham at the moment. We're all obviously remote. But uh, uh, Daniel, we've got to touch on zero ducks given. Uh, Toby's attempt to elbow his way into our territory. Uh, we we showed him everything that he he knows. Obviously, he was our first guest. Um, you know that Radio X. Still, you've got no bearing on it whatsoever. Um, no, but in, in all seriousness, what a brilliant job the three of you are doing. Uh, I, I loved listening to all of them. Um, some amazing names for the podcast that didn't quite make the final cut. Uh, if you'd like to run us through some yeah. of the special ones. Yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still a little bit sore about this because I, I firmly believe that we should be called Virat Kohli Ate My Hamster. Um, <laughs> because... It, it refers to a very famous headline, Freddie Star ate my hamster. Uh, and then suddenly, I say the legal team, that makes zero ducks given sound like we are actually like some kind of enormous organisation <laughs> rather than five people on a WhatsApp group. Um, but um, yes, it was thought that we might get sued or it might be, it might be bad. So, so I kept going with this. I said, well, how about Donald Bradman ate my hamster? And then it was, well, you know, people won't quite know the reference. I said, okay, how about... Mike Gatting ate everything except my hamster. <laughs> um, and and my my personal favourite was Edo Brandes biscuit barrel. Yes, but um, which was a, you know it's a it's a nod to a famous sledge, but also to older listeners and much older listeners. One of my favourite Monty Python sketches in which uh, uh, one of the people standing for election from the very silly party is called. Uh, Fintin, Limbin, Nimbin, Simbin, Dinbin, Olay Biscuit Barrel. <laughs> and uh, But apparently, yet again, I was told that I didn't have my finger on the pulse of modern popular opinion. So <laughs> I've, I had to let it go. So we went with Zero Ducks Given, which I think is probably a far better name than any of the ones I came up with. And and look, the remit is was very simple. It was, we wanted, we wanted to make, um, we want to make a podcast with a, with a full... I say former cricket. I mean, Philly plays. Is that a little bit Peter Crouchy? Um, and that's what you know. Why we went for a six foot seven inch bean pole, <laughs> who's slightly. Did you just pick the cricketer that was closest to Peter Crouch? Yeah, I mean, I've got to say, Philly is more beautiful than Peter Crouch. He looks like Tamsin Gregg, the, yeah. uh, the the great actress from Black Books and that. So, uh, <laughs> but also, I've, I've worked a bit with Philly, and I just think he's he's a really underrated talent behind a mic I think he's a very funny man he's very brilliantly lugubrious I mean we've already got a running thing going which is you know things that Finney hates the most about cricket and they're almost all about you know being a fast bowler and it not being fair (laughs) and it's you know it's it's umpires it's being left stranded on one not out 99 runs short of your maiden first class 100 um you know batting at number 11 it's it's any it's, it's he's got an inexhaustible supply of things that drive him mad about cricket and he's just a joy to be with and toby is just a supremely brilliant broadcaster who loves his he cricket. loves it he yeah. loves his cricket he loves yeah. and he loves the lord's taverners mm. as well and i'm so one of the things I, you know, I haven't mentioned or touched on is just, you know, how lovely it is to be on this podcast. The Lord's Tavern has helped me out 
with uh, the podcast or documentary I did with Adam Collins called Calling the Shots. And I've worked, worked is a, is a massive overstatement for what we do with the Laws Tavern. The Laws Tavern give you a great opportunity to, to turn up to some of their incredible events and be part of it with some fabulous people who are all there uh, caring about what, what their charity can do for disadvantaged kids. And it's, an, it's a great thing to be part of. Toby's part of that. And, um, you know, there's, there's two-thirds of zero ducks at least is in, is in uh, the Lost Taverners. And knowing the Lost Taverners' luck, given the people they've got sponsoring them for pounds per run, yeah. Joe Denley and Zach Crawley, Zach Crawley and the like, they'll, they'll probably sign up Stephen Finn <laughs> next. So but I've just I've just signed up Finney this week for Woodstock, so he, he's one of our new pros. So yeah, oh, yeah, he? yeah. So oh, obviously marvelous. Toby's involved. He's, well. So he's gonna have he's gonna have stickers on he his back. Yeah. Finney's yeah. gonna have stickers on yeah, his back. Sorry Brilliant. for him. Yeah. Big stickers as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's gonna have the longest bat. Yes. <laughs> so. Uh, no, brilliant. Look, I, I think uh, on that, we're you know our golf day that we're going to um, we're running with the Lord's Sevens on the first of July. I know that there's an England game on, but hopefully, if Daniel's not commentating, he'll be able to come up. Toby's coming up, Max Rushton, and uh, we're actually trying to get Crouchy to come up for the day to play in the golf day, and then come for the dinner and the. Oh, get Crouchy and Finney. That'd be a, that we we could have a we could have an incredibly tall England to- sportsman. To- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Actual standoff. Um, Daniel, thank you so, so much uh, for for agreeing to come on and join us. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, It's nice to talk to you or hear you speaking. Normally when Daniel and I are in the same company, he's normally abusing me while I'm batting for the Lord's Taverners. (laughs) That's right. That's that's exactly right, Jono. And you you deserve it because, quite frankly, you're you're better than that, Jono. (laughs) Just you know, just 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 play yourself in. Just you don't have to thrash at everything. You don't have to try and smack everything inside out over extra cover. Uh, th- th- um. Thirty-eight. I've, I've only got one way of going about it these days, unfortunately. But now, Daniel, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for opening up about your parents and and being so open about that. You know that uh, will help people that listen to this. And you know, obviously, you know, talking to Eugene about his particular situation as well. You know. Uh, it's great that guests are coming on and, and a bit are willing to be so open. So it's uh, no, it's been an absolute pleasure to spend this time with you. Thanks very much. Oh, guys, thank you for having me, and all the best of luck with the um, with the, with the podcast. Keep going. You're doing a fantastic job, and uh, I think most importantly, on a on a moderately serious note here, let's just keep talking. Just keep talking, people. Super. Thanks very much, mate. Thanks, Thanks Dan. Dan. Cheers. Really appreciate it. Looking for a new cricket equipment partner for yourself or your club can sometimes be tricky. With so many options to choose from, how do you make the right choice? When you want quality, value and service, there really is only one place to start. For more than a decade, Woodstock Cricket have been producing award-winning, high-performance cricket bats from their Shropshire workshop. Matched with their classy soft goods, luggage and accessories, Woodstock Cricket really do tick all the boxes. Get in touch with Woodstock Cricket and find out why many loyal clubs, players and international customers can't be wrong at info at woodstockcricket.co.uk.